I'd like you to turn to Exodus 20. And we're going to be continuing our little, my series with you in the Ten Commandments. Um, and we're looking at what I've called Fundamentals 5, and then it's You Shall Not Commit Adultery. And the, the astute members of the congregation, of which not the least is Betty in the prayer meeting beforehand, said, what are you doing preaching on You Shall Not Commit Adultery as number five? It's quite right, because number five should be Honour Your Father and Mother. And I'm going to read the three that I want to do in the next three times I preach, which is verses 12 to 14 of Exodus 20, and give a little bit explanation why I'm not doing it in the correct order. So, Exodus 20 and verse 12. Honour your father and mother, honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord is give, your God is giving you. I'm sorry, I didn't read that very well. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Now, actually there are two commandments that focus on uh, the family, really, on, on the family, the core of family life. And they are, number five, honour your father and mother, and number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And because over the next few weeks we're a little bit broken up with things happening, it's Brighton this week, next week we've got Dave Lockyer preaching and we've got Subhas and John with us, John from Nepal, Subhas from uh, Shillong, so they'll be sharing a bit. The week after that we're on holiday and uh, Dave Thompson's preaching and then I'm preaching again after that. And then the week after that is a baby Thanksgiving. And I wanted to speak on honouring your father and mother on the baby Thanksgiving, so I've actually swapped round five and seven. That is the explanation. But it's my fifth talk, but it's on commandment seven. And I think five and seven do go together, because they're both about family relationships. Honouring your parents, you should not commit adultery. I think it's worth noticing that of just ten commandments, there are only ten that summarise God's main core word to us as human beings. Two of those ten, 20% of them, are what we might say addressed directly to family life, about the best and way to live family life. So these two are, are, are a core part of what God says to family life. Let's remind ourselves that the Ten Commandments show us a number of things. The first thing they do is the maker's instructions, the best way to live in this world, the best way to make the best of this world. And in that context, God has a lot to say in just those ten about family life. God believes, and God knows because he made us, that families are the key central building block to society. Healthy family life is absolutely central to a healthy human society. Families are the knots, if you like, that make up the fabric of society. And the two key elements of family are respect for parents and respect for partners. So respect and honour for parents 
and respect and honour for our partners, our husband or wife, are absolutely central to God's plans for humanity. And be in no doubt, we are not today talking about Victorian values or something like that. We're talking about commandments written nearly 4,000 years ago. We're talking about something for all peoples in all cultures, unashamedly. And actually core to a healthy society and healthy human beings is a respect and honour for parents and a respect and honour and commitment to our partner, to our husband or our wife. And God is very clear about that. Family life, it's not just Victorian, it's central to human existence in the way it should be and to a healthy, stable society. It's not surprising, therefore, that our nation is in trouble. Because I want to say straight away, in 21st century Britain, and I have watched this happen in my lifetime through the late 20th century and the early 21st century, we have systematically attacked these two core things of the relationship of parents to children and husband to wife, wife to husband, marriage, the integrity of marriage and family life. Now, you might say, well, people haven't done that deliberately. Well, I don't know if some, I honestly think some have had it done, done it deliberately. But the vast majority, it's not particularly deliberate. It's a drift into sin and compromise. And frankly, our politicians, our laws, have undermined family life in these two key areas significantly in the last few decades. Let me give you just a few examples. A few decades ago, tax law would have favoured marriage you would have benefited by tax if you were a married person. That's now considered to be unfair. You don't reinforce marriage financially. But I know, and I can assure you from personal experience, because I've got three young married uh, children who are all married, I have had one of my daughters was a single mum at one time, and I know because we've investigated things, I've been along to welfare places, I've, I've I investigated things, actually we are now in a position where tax and welfare favours cohabitation rather than marriage. I have worked hard with couples who got saved. When I was in Hastings, I think this is primarily in my mind, who live together, become Christians, and want to get married. And I can tell you the names of these people, and some of the biggest challenge has been the financial cost of getting married. And I think that is terrible. I have unashamed. That actually, if people want to get married, they actually lose money. Whereas if they're living together as two independent people, it benefits them. And I, I know that, because that was a pastoral challenge. We just got the people to see it morally, and then practically they said, but we can't afford to get married. Now, I mean, that's what's happened in our country, and it's happened in a number of ways. We were talking to our son and daughter-in-law the other day. She's, we've got two small grandchildren, uh, small granddaughters, and my daughter-in-law is thinking of going back and doing some um, work. This is a different a sort of line on the same issue. And she's finding that actually the way tax law is today, you are better off if, you, if you're a working mum with young children. You've got to do quite a bit of work to really benefit. She just wants a few hours. I don't understand the details. Some of you may know more. But actually she needs to do a couple of days of teaching or whatever it is, or two or three. The tax law is encouraging, in inverted commas, mothers to go back to work under the auspices of that being very fair and, you know, equality at whatever. Why don't we have tax laws that actually financially benefit a young mother, particularly, I mean mother with children under school age, why don't we have tax laws that actually benefit her staying at home? You could do it. You could do it. It's been done before. You make choices. Governments make choices about the tax breaks they give, about how the welfare falls, who it favours and doesn't favour. 
And when the rubber hits the road, our tax laws now don't favour godly family life. They favour single parenthood, cohabitation and, say, a mother of young children working as soon as possible. And those things favour it. I'm not even making a moral point because some of you will be working young mothers. I'm not having a go at you. I'm saying that the actual choices made by our governments show what they value and don't value in life. And it's no longer a Christian value, really. And that is one that's sad. There are other laws, of course, that probably encourage uh, children to feel that they have rights which are contrary to parents. I mean, seriously worrying laws, like a person engaging in underage sex who maybe goes for contraceptive counselling or perhaps to consider an abortion, has a sort of confidentiality thing where they can't, the parents aren't involved. Isn't that crazy? So you can't talk to a parent. The person may well be underage sex. They're, they're, they're resp- if they're going to have their tonsils out, the mother has all sorts of rights, or the father or both. But if they're going to have contraceptive advice or an abortion, the parents aren't even told. That's undermining these values of respect and honour for parents and for partners. We do actually have laws, and there's many more. Obviously, I'm not going to go off too long on that this morning. But even our culture, subliminally, if you like, or casually, is doing it all the time. Just things like uh, the way our TV soaps and media and films portray married life or portray parenthood. or, or It's all the time eating away at these two fundamentals, and we are already paying a high price. I have to say, I think things like civil partnerships, so-called gay marriages, equally eat away at it. I think they're eating away at godly principles. We don't need laws like that. I don't want to go to something like that. You know, what I actually believe a civil partnership for gay people is doing is legitimising lifelong commitment to sin. That's what it's doing. It's legitimising lifelong commitment to sin. Now, I'm not lacking compassion for the individuals but I want to be clear, these laws are not righteous okay? and they're undermining all of the values that hold us together as a people we will sow the wind and reap a whirlwind in this nation already probably are there will be destructive forces set loose by this sort of attitude a humanistic, politically correct sort of atheistic philosophy behind ethics is very dangerous. It's not rooted in a biblical worldview about the family and its integrity and its importance at the core of society. Well, the good news is that there are answers. There are answers in Jesus Christ. It's not just about imposing laws on people. It's about people understanding how God works and how God's ways are best. We'll be looking at that as we go through this morning. And, of course, the Ten Commandments, one of their purposes is to drive us to Christ. It is to show us how far short we fall, and we'll see that this morning, of where we should be, and then to take us in to Jesus, who is the answer and, sol- and, and solution and salvation to the problem. Another purpose of the Ten Commandments, and I must say this, is that they demonstrate to Christians, new creations, born-again Christians, many of us in this room are like that, they demonstrate to us the righteousness that God will produce in us through the work of his spirit. There is a danger that Christians get a little too dismissive of the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not creating legalism, but actually people sort of think it's irrelevant to us. No, it's not. The spirit of God will produce the righteousness that the law couldn't produce in our lives. And actually, most of the Ten Commandments are in a new covenant way clearly restated in our covenant. For example, not for this week, 
the whole one of five, honour your father and mother, is specifically mentioned. Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. We're not going to turn to it now. It's not only specifically mentioned, but there's additional teaching about fathers not exasperating your children and about bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. God clearly expects his new covenant people to display that sort of honouring of parents, that sort of wonderful balance between care and, and guidance from the parents and protection and honour and obedience from the child. It's clearly there. And equally, in this one, you shall not have committed adultery, the new covenant goes not only as high, but far higher than the old. I could just, and I will, just refer you to what Jesus said, teaching his disciples. I haven't got any PowerPoints today, John's on holiday. I refer you to what Jesus said, teaching his disciples. Um, And I'll just read you a couple of verses. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. Listen to this. Jesus, to his disciples, to people like us, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, it's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Quite challenging. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to deal with the root problem. You've heard the law said, don't commit adultery. I'm going to deal with the heart problem. And actually, that's what the Holy Spirit does do. The lust problem is the real problem and that's what God goes for and changes by the Holy Spirit. And he teaches us to circumcise our hearts. He teaches us how to say no to ungodliness. We're taught that by the Holy Spirit. In actual fact, the New Testament radiates a higher standard of family life. Just think of what's taught in Ephesians 5 about uh, husbands and wives and their attitudes and their, that a husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and a husband is to, and to care for and provide for her and a wife is to obey and respect her husband as, as we respect and obey Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. It's the core of what God's after. He says, look, I'm not really interested in just the law telling you not to commit adultery. This is what I'm leading you into. The new covenant is to have new covenant families where husbands love their wives just like Jesus loves the church. And a wife responds to a husband as the Christian or the church responds to Jesus. What a wonderful picture. And in that, as an almost aside, for example, in Ephesians 5 it says, to Christians, children of light, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Among you, there must not even be a hint. That's not a law, that's a declaration of how it will be in the new covenant. So we need to see this law gives us the core of what's best for humanity. It shows us the basic bottom lines that God has about how to be healthy and successful as human beings in the world he's made. It shows us our sin and drives us to Christ And as Christians, when we are born again, when we have been forgiven, we find that the Holy Spirit is going to cause us to live live and fulfil the righteous requirements that the law could never achieve because of our weakness and sin. So, these subjects are very relevant to us. And we're going to quickly look at you shall not commit adultery today. Just that part is part of what I wanted to say because it applies very much to both um, both of these laws. Let's look at, you shall not commit adultery then. You hardly need to be having the Bible open, do you? It's a very simple, very simple statement. A very simple statement. As you know, adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their legal partner. But, that's from a dictionary. The dictionary will also add, 
and lack of chastity generally. That's the Chambers Dictionary I looked at yesterday. So there is an understanding in dictionaries even, and it's rooted perhaps in Christian worldview, that this technically, obviously, is about a married person having sex with someone other than their husband or wife. That's the core of adultery. We'll talk about that in a moment because there's some very serious aspects to adultery itself. But behind this um, simple statement is a recognition that sex outside of marriage is wrong, really. Full stop. That lack of chastity is also a violation of God's purpose for us. Basic biblical facts are this. That adultery is a practice that is condemned throughout the Bible from end to end and is seen as terrible (laughs) and a reflection of awful things that happen. Like it's a picture of God's people turning their back on him and worshipping other gods. It's constantly used as a bad thing throughout the Bible. And throughout the Bible, the correct and best biblical setting for sex is one man and one woman in a covenant commitment who are known to be committed to each other, have left their old family they brought up in and cleave to each other solely and securely and are publicly known in some form to be in that union which we call marriage. And that's God's best. That's how it should be. God loves marriage. History starts with a marriage, Adam and Eve. And in fact, right at the opening, God put marriage in place before he put church in place or before he put governments in place. The very first thing he put in place with humanity is marriage. One man and one woman together. He's making a very clear marker right at the beginning of history. And if you struggle with dates and things, let me tell you that that was written, Genesis, again, thousands of years ago, as was Exodus 20. We are not talking Victorian morality. We're talking fundamental principles about human existence. And the Bible itself is very aware of the aberrations sin has brought. Genesis, the very book that starts with Adam and Eve, has in it plenty of real-life street cred. It's got rape. It's got sodomy. It's got incest. It's got bigamy. It's all there in Genesis. It's got the lot, because that's what's happened. Sin has done that. But actually... That is not how God made it, and that's loud and clear from end to end. One man and one woman cleaving together, leaving and cleaving. God ends history with a marriage. The marriage supper of the church to Jesus. That is how history ends. When Jesus did his first miracle, it was at a wedding marriage. God really loves marriage. God really loves it. God sees it as a visual aid of his relationship with his people. Don't get personal. Like when you're listening to this thing, oh, what do you mean? If God loves marriage and I'm not married, does God love me? No, lay aside the personal. This is big picture stuff. I'm not talking about it. God loves us whether we're single or not. Jesus was single. Paul was single. I'm talking about the positives of marriage. just want to hold everybody. I want you to understand this is something that is gloriously important. God sees marriage as glo- it is a visual aid of his relationship with us. In actual fact, it's possibly a visual aid of how the Trinity works. 
It's the nearest, a good, healthy, godly union between a man and woman, maybe the nearest thing we can get to how God works in his oneness and yet in his three persons. That the two complement each other, the two bring different elements and there's a a sort of symbiosis and a a oneness to a healthy, godly Christian marriage, for example. And as people grow in age and grow closer together in physical union over many years, thousands of times they've linked their bodies as well as everything else, they become something very special in that. And that gives us a little idea about how God works that he's some sort of wonderful unity and yet three persons. There's something precious. And because of this preciousness, listen to this, the devil hates marriage. He loves to destroy that which reflects the image of God, whether it's human beings anyway, per se, or whether it's marriage which particularly has something precious to, to display. It is something that demonic angels and good angels, actually, cannot experience in the way human beings can experience. It is something uniquely demonstrating the fact that we're made in the image of God. It is something that highlights something about God. And for that reason, listen, brothers and sisters, marriage is a target for Satan. And if you're a Christian this morning here and married, wake up, you're in spiritual warfare. Don't get fearful, but don't get stupid and naive either. The devil hates marriages and he hates Christian marriages more than any other because they reflect something of God and he loves to destroy and spoil. And so we need to be awake and sober and watchful about this whole area of life. The devil clearly also likes to see humanity in pain and anger and just destroying itself. He loves to drive people to death. He he loves to stir up the storms of war. Let loose the dogs of war. That's what the devil loves to do. He loves to drive people to suicide. And if he can destroy marriages and and break up sexuality and confuse people and make them sterile and no longer producing children because they're all in same-sex marriages, he loves it. Because the very core of marriage is to produce more in the image of God, more little human beings, more unique human beings. God has decreed it that way. God has made it that way. And in a godly setting, where two come together as people of God, they are producing more of God's people on the earth. The devil hates that as well. And so we've got to see these things are not just neutral. They are righteousness statements, things about marriage, things about parenting. And they are therefore contended for in the spiritual realm. I honestly do not believe I'm exaggerating. And I think it's because of that that we have so much personal pressure on marriages, A third of marriages, we're told, end in divorce these days. But even those who are married often seem quite unhappy and struggling. I've been a pastor now for 30 years. I have repeatedly seen the pattern I'm about to describe to you. People who are unmarried struggling with not have, struggling with, basically wanting to have sex immorally. People who are not married almost finding it far too easy to have sex. And people who are married increasingly not having sex and getting too busy or too many children and not getting into bed with each other while the ones who aren't married keep wanting to get into bed with each other. Now, I've even laughed about that with my fellow elders sometimes when I've been dealing with some pretty nitty-gritty pastoral problems. And I've come right from one where two single people can't keep their hands off each other to a married couple who haven't touched each other for about a week, a year. A week would be fine. A year. A year. And, and, 
And t- to be honest, I don't think that is just by chance. I think there is a demonic strategy in that. And I think we need to stand against it. I need to think we need to be clear in our spirits. If you're married, enjoy your sex life, for goodness sake. And if you are not married, learn to use self-control and to walk in the spirit and to follow the path that Jesus and Paul would have taught you to follow. Let's be real about these things. And the devil wants one lot to do one thing and the other lot not to do it. And that is part of his temptation and his strategy. And I would actually feel the temptation for married couples to grow apart and to not be having a sex life is probably equally as important to the devil as the temptation to get the others doing things they shouldn't. And so we need to learn how to walk as Christians this day and age. Behind us and around us is a culture which has no understanding of this at all. Adultery in our day and age is, going, is, 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 is not only seen as okay, it's seen as good, as humorous, as funny, as something uh, worth copying, as exciting, desirable. Marriage is boring and all the rest of it. That's how it's often portrayed. It's rubbish, but that's how it's portrayed. Psychologists, counsellors would say you've got to be true to yourself that your supreme goal in life is to do basically what you want to do. And that boils down to selfishness becoming a driving thing. I don't, I don't control myself. My commitment to another person is only reasonable as long as it suits me. It's only reasonable as it meets my needs. And once it doesn't meet my needs, I am told that I need to be honest, true to myself not hypocritical, and find somebody else to jump into bed with who satisfies my needs. And there's a psychological justification for adultery. Now, previous generations have not found it any easier to avoid the sin, but there hasn't been the moral vacuum we have. Most people realise they're doing something they shouldn't and they try to control themselves. That's gone on for for centuries. But, But nowadays there's a justification. Be true to yourself. You're a hypocrite if you don't. You know, you don't love that person any longer, so go off and find someone you do love. And be real. And that's a new twist to it all. And that's around so much today. But actually, adultery is very dangerous. God is not a spoil sport. He doesn't just block off avenues of pleasure. He is our creator. He knows how we are made, and he knows how we work. And he knows what does us harm. And I briefly want to touch three aspects of the dangers of adultery and its associated, if you like, sins, the things that God's talking about here. I want to briefly talk, again, a bit more, about the issue of sex. God understands sex. He made it. God is not shocked by it. He's not a prude or puritanical. He made this incredible drive in people, which has also great benefits and blessings, but also great dangers, if you like, there are things that need control. We need to be higher than the animals. We aren't, made, we aren't animals. We're, we're made in the image of God. And there is more to it than the physical coupling that people seem to think it all it is. Sex, there is no such thing, actually, I believe, as sex without consequences. It doesn't exist. Sex without consequences is a myth. There are always consequences. The sexual union that goes on, even not only between man and woman, but other unions like the homosexual one, always has massive consequences in individual psyche and the lives. You cannot bond two people together and not do something that will ultimately damage them when you rip them apart if they're not bonded together in a lifelong covenant commitment. And if you think I'm exaggerating, let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear that even the sexual relations between 
a person and a prostitute, which is the most mechanical and superficial you can think of, they involve a bonding and a damaging of the people involved. Even with a prostitute, the most mechanical and superficial, there is a bonding, becoming one flesh. Read it for yourself, 1 Corinthians 6, the terminology. It is not something you have a fling and forget it doesn't have any consequences. It just is not like that. We are not made like that. We are meant to have our sexual union in a full knowing of the other person. And the old uh, Bible used to describe sexual union as knowing. Adam knew his wife. And it's a good word because it talks about a, a sort of full knowledge which, of which sex may be the core and is the core and the centre, but it's by no means the whole thing. There's a profound one flesh central act which is in a lives, lives that are shared in many, many other ways. There's a holistic approach, biblically. That's why your union is not merely sexual. It is two to coming together and becoming one, becoming one unit in the fullest sense of the word. A covenant commitment. Our society is besotted with myths about sex. And brothers and sisters, they are myths, such as that you find fulfilment through promiscuous sex. You do not find fulfilment. You can say, how do you know, John? You haven't done it. No, I haven't done it. I'm proud to say I've not been promiscuously sex guilty of that. I've been guilty of a lot of lusts and sins and battles with all sorts of things. I'm not pretending I'm holy, but okay, I haven't done that. But I don't need to have done it. You don't need to get into a dustbin to know it's full of rubbish. They say, oh, I don't know what's in a dustbin. You'd have to climb in there to be able to speak about it. Oh, go and jump off a cliff. Look, you, you can work these things out without too much trouble if you are real and with people. I've been a teacher for 10 years and I've been a pastor for 25 or something. I've seen the damage of life like this again and again. I've prayed and wept with people. We've counselled people. I know promiscuous sex does you harm. Now, God can forgive you. Praise God, I've known that for 30 years. You can be washed clean. What I'm worried about is the myths out there that somehow that is fulfilling and healthy. It's dangerous and it's not fulfilling and healthy. There are a lot of them about. Another myth, which is actually statistically proved to be a myth, but you never hear about it in the papers, is that chastity before marriage is a bad thing and will lead to a shaky marriage. In other words, you need to have lots of sexual experience before you're married. You two particularly are going to get married. You should be having sex and living together to make sure you're the right ones to have a stable marriage. Total rubbish. Statistics, statistics even, not just the Bible or anything, prove that when people are married who have been chaste, they're virgins, they are far more likely to stay together for life. Far more likely. Statistically, it's just a fact. So staying a virgin until you get married is healthy, it's honourable, it's protecting yourself and keeping your dignity, and it actually will make for a better marriage in the end and a more stable one. So if you're in this room this morning and you have the privilege, and it's a high privilege of being single and still a virgin, thank God for it and don't throw it away and waste it. If you've lost it, God can forgive you and restore. We have to talk two ways this morning. But if you've got it, don't get rid of it, male or female. Keep it for marriage. It's a much stabler basis for a healthy marriage. Here's another statistic about that myth. Statistically, it is proven that if a couple live together before they're married, they are statistically more likely to divorce. 
That's the statistics. If a couple lived together before they're married, the statistics tell you they are more likely to divorce. And it doesn't take a genius to see why. Because one of the characteristics of living together is, of course, that the whole relationship is provisional. And now what's apparent is that that attitude carries over into marriage. It still has a provisional feel in your mind. You were trying each other out. You were seeing if it worked, but you were doing everything that a married couple should do. How you can't just have a piece of paper and suddenly change your attitude. You still have a maybe it won't work. If it doesn't work, I can try someone else. Now, you may say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't. You are likely to have. Again, there's answers. We'll get to them in the end. I'm going to have to preach the answers or you'll go home depressed. But there are answers, but... If you're not in that position of having compromise in that way, don't do it. The idea that somehow living together and having the full deal and jet sex together is going to make sure we're the right ones and have a good marriage is just a myth. You have a good marriage for all sorts of other reasons. Commitment, selflessness. Biblic- the best thing you can do is understand biblical principles of marriage. That's what will make a good marriage. It's what worked for Marion and I. It's worked for millions of other couples. It isn't trying each other out is not what makes a good marriage. That's more likely to make a bad marriage or one that will fall apart. The provisional feel will continue if you're not careful and it's hard for it not to. The issue of covenant is the other one. Sex, I've talked about covenant. You see, God sees covenant as very important. God is a God of covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. And God is faithful to his promises and to his word. And God hates it when we break covenant. It's something that annoys It's not just about the sex thing. It's the covenant thing. Unfaithfulness, which is what adultery is, is abhorrent to God. It's abhorrent to God. He is very big on integrity of word, on integrity of promise. And adultery is a fundamental betrayal of trust and of your word. And I find that sometimes really sticks in my throat and makes me indignant when our society treats adultery so lightly. It is a terrible compromise of, of integrity and trust. You are betraying another person, hideously. And our society is totally twisted about this. There's many a respectable, inverted commas, person who would not dream of stealing somebody else's money, but will steal their wife or their husband. So you're saying their money is more important than their wife or husband, are you? What sort of topsy-turvy values are they? That I can't, leave, I can't leave my wife near you, but I can leave my wallet near you. You won't steal my wallet. But if I leave my wife near you and you like her and fancy her, you might well steal her. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's the twisted values we have today. And I find it goes on and on. You get somebody who's a government minister, no names, no pactrill. A government minister, he can commit adultery and they say, oh, it's his private life. You know, he's all right. He can do his job. Can he? Can we trust him? His wife can't trust him, can she? He's obviously deceived his wife. He's obviously prepared to play around with somebody else's wife or potential wife. So why should we trust him in any other area? I like the old Christian way. When that's exposed, you lose your job. That's Christian morality. It's applied to me. I wouldn't keep my job. And it's right. Because if you're inconsistent in that area, who tells me you're consistent in other areas? How do I know you're trustworthy in other areas? This is a fundamental breach of trust. Adultery is a fundamental breach of trust. And it has serious effects. The third point, covenant, moving on to, on our well-being. This is why God tells us not to do it. Why he forbids adultery. It causes devastation. 
If you have to deal with the consequences, you know it does to all sorts of people. Marriage is tough at times, but adultery is tougher and tougher on more people in the end. There's the damage done to the adulterer, the one who's deceived and lied and betrayed, which damages their psyche and their character, needs to be forgiven and healed. There's the damage done to the one who is betrayed or let down, the hurt, the shame, the rejection, the despair, the breaking heart. There's the damage done, if they're involved, to children who may well end up rejected and guilty and confused. It's bad news all round. It's not funny and it's not entertaining. Adultery is not amusing, as our culture seems to think it is. I have no question it is bad for us. God is right. You shall not commit adultery. Don't mess around with this beautiful gift of sex I've given you. Don't mess around with this beautiful gift of marriage that I've given you. Don't mess around with the covenant. Don't mess around with the sex. Don't let it, don't let it be spoiled, our God would say to us. But it is spoiled, isn't it, all round us. Probably many of us in this room have fallen far short of the standards that God would have us have. We all have. So here is the good news. And it's very, very good news. I want to read you, you can look at it if you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Maybe if you have got a Bible, you should turn to it. 1 Corinthians 6. And I want to read to you an astounding, stunning passage, in my opinion. I want to read to you verses 9 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. Look at this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. That passage starts with the, the blunt truth as reflected from the Ten Commandments. That sort of behaviour is way outside the kingdom of God. You are without God and without hope as a sinner. We all are sinners. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. The people in Corinth, some of them were in grosser sexual sin than most of us have dreamt about. And yet some of them had come right out of that and they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Anyone here, anyone in this room, who's, you might say, I've already got into this stuff, John. I've already messed up again and again. There is this hope for you and it's a hope we constantly build on and we constantly live by, as Christians as well. It's the hope of the Gospel. We can be washed absolutely clean by the blood of Jesus. We can be washed. It's put past. You were washed. When you became a Christian, you were washed. You can put faith in Jesus and have your sins washed away. All their guilt and all their power too. It says you can be sanctified. You were sanctified, it actually says. 
you can be sanctified. What's that mean? Sanctified means made holy. Made holy. That's incredible. Set apart from, for God. Set apart for God, not from God. Set apart for God is what it means. In other words, you can become God's own holy person. I'm not holy. I'm a homosexual offender. I'm a male prostitute. I'm an adulterer. These were signs. Yes, you can be sanctified. Yeah, male prostitute. You can be sanctified. You can be made holy. Made holy. You were justified. Justified means declared totally innocent. Declared completely innocent. Declared righteous. God says you are no longer sinner, a sinner. You are righteous. You are justified. It's, incre- it's hard. I keep using the words. Cause I don't wonder if you believe it. Do you believe it? I believe it. But it's hard to express it, isn't it? You think, do I just shout louder? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not moaning at you. I'm moaning at myself. You know, it's awesome, isn't it awesome? That you could be a male prostitute. You could be an adulterer, homosexual offender, a thief, a drunkard, a slanderer. And you are washed, sanctified, justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How does it happen? In the, on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. It's not going to be in your name. It's not on your merit. It doesn't happen because of what you've done. No one can make themselves righteous. Nobody can. No one. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sin. He bore your iniquity in his body on the cross. With his stripes you can be healed. His blood avails for you. Stuff you all know, but some of you might not know so well, if you're just in uh, recently. But there's probably phrases you've heard. But this is the Christian gospel. You can be washed absolutely clean in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the authority of what Jesus has done, you can be forgiven. And it happens, it's applied to your life by the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is the Holy Spirit who actually does the business and you're born again, renewed, changed, which is why you can live differently. Which is why, brothers and sisters, Christians, we no longer have to fulfill the lusts of the flesh as we walk in the Spirit. We are made new. We are born again by the Spirit of our God. And now if we will walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We can live differently. We don't have to continue to be adulterers and male prostitutes, just forgiven but continuing to do what we used to do. No, we are by the Spirit of God changed. And so I can give you a sentence or two, which is an amalgam of the teaching, for example, of Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20. You can read it for yourself, but just listen to what I'm going to say. Because this is a sort of concentration of what the Bible teaches for Christians. As dearly loved children of God... We can live a life of love and be imitators of God. Therefore, among us, there need not be even a hint of sexual immorality because we are now light in the Lord and can live as children of light. We can please the Lord as we go on being filled with the Spirit again and again and again. That's the John Groves paraphrase of the first five verses of Ephesians 5. You read it for yourself. 
And it's Christian truth. It can apply to every one of us in this room. We're dearly loved children of God. We can now be imitators of God. We can follow after his way. We can live as children of light, which he's made us. We don't need to have even a hint of sexual immorality because we can walk in the Spirit and go on being filled with the Spirit and as such, we can live a life pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? What the law could never do, the Spirit does. You can be faithful to your wife, faithful to your husband. You can keep yourself till you're married. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to go with the flow of our culture. You can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Finally, it just Jesus somehow summed it up in a wonderful moment, cameo in the Gospels. Do you know the bit where there was a woman caught in adultery? She'd been caught red-handed committing adultery. And the law righteously said she should die. And when she was brought to be stoned, Jesus, in his unique way, turned the tables on the men who were going to stone her. Basically, he said, one without sin can throw the first stone. And they all knew that their own hearts were as sinful at least as hers. And so they all crept away. And then Jesus turns to this woman who had committed adultery, remember. She'd been caught doing it. No question about her sin. And he says this, two things essentially. Your sin is forgiven. Go and sin no more. And that's Jesus doing what I've just been talking about from the gospel. That is the gospel. Your sin is forgiven. Go and sin no more. The law would have executed you. You don't need to die because Jesus could have said, because I'm going to die. So dear, you're not going to die because I'm going to die. The law says adulterer dies, but you're not going to die because I'm going to die, which he did on the cross. He didn't say that. That's what he could have said. But I will forgive your sin. Now, I'm telling you, go and sin no more. I'm going to empower you to go and live differently. Amen? That's the Christian gospel. It's wonderful. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've been through probably quite a long morning. You've wondered what we're all about. We've had children's work. We've had